Hey everyone, this is Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Seat Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. My guest today is Avi Mayer, co-founder and CEO of Travelperk, a Barcelona-based business travel platform that revolutionizes the way that organizations budget, book, and manage business travel. Avi's story is fascinating. After doing an MBA in Barcelona, he started Hotel Ninja, a hotel management software company that he then sold to Booking.com. Less than a year after his first exit in 2015, Avi co-founded Travelperk and has been on an absolute roll since then. Travelperk has raised over 130 million in six funding rounds from investors like Spark, Felix Capital, Hardcore, and Target Global, and it's one of the fastest growing SaaS companies in Europe. Avi is an extremely insightful and entertaining guest, so this episode is full of fun tidbits, random rabbit holes, and tactical advice for founders. We cover absolutely everything. Why Avi started Travelperk only 10 months after selling his first company, his thoughts on work-life balance and ambition, how Travelperk dealt with COVID-19, doing their first acquisition in the middle of a pandemic, the value of reading and journaling, the importance of having a family, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hey, Abby, welcome to the Seat Table Podcast. I'm a big fan of what you're doing, so it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, and I'm a big fan of what you're doing, so it's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So let's, let's dive straight in. You define as a husband and a father first. So I'm curious, what did your wife say when you mentioned you wanted to start Travel Perk only 10 months after going through the roller coaster of starting and selling your first company to Booking.com? It's a, it's a great question. Did, did you ask you to ask the question, <laughs> or, or did you think? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and actually, the 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 the, the secrets not so secret because I tell it everywhere, including here, right? So it's not so secret anymore. But the non-secret story is that she actually pushed me to to start Robert. And the the background for that was that, as you said, we we had uh, Christian Enstrom and I, my co-founder at at, uh, at the Ninjas, who by the way is Argentinian, a great guy. So uh, we sold the business to, to Booking.com in 2014, and I stayed around with Booking.com for another year, a bit less than a year. And the idea of, or the, uh, the plan was to move to Amsterdam and keep working for, for Booking.com, which is, by the way, a great company. Uh, it's it's a great environment, great culture, very international, based in one of the best cities in the world, Amsterdam. So what's not to like? So I came back home from, from that business trip, uh, meeting with my boss and uh, at Booking.com, and I said uh, to, to my wife, to Judith, I said, "Honey, we're moving to Amsterdam," and 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 she said, "Honey, you can go anywhere you want. I'm staying here." And and our older son, our firstborn son, was was uh, six months old, I think, at the time. She's like, "I like it here." You know, she's French, I'm Israeli, and we made our life in Barcelona. And so it was her pushing me to first for let's say a life choice to stay in Barcelona. And then I told her, I'm bringing you to my, to my uh, home uh, discussion that I had with my, you know, with my wife so in real time. So I told her, fine, but what, what will I do? Like, I, don't, I cannot work for, I don't want to work for Gas Natural, and I'm not sure I would be even accepted. My Spanish is not existent. Like, what will I do? 
And she said, well, start a new company. Just, you know, you like this stuff. Right? Are you sure? Like, you know how you remember that, right? It was only two years ago that you saw me like getting all my gray hair and not sleeping at night and losing a bit of my sanity, the little I have I had left. And she's like, yeah, go for it. So I, and to this day, I don't know if she said go for it because she knew that that's the only thing I wanted to do and she wanted to stay in, in Barcelona. So it was like self-serving, go for it. Or that uh, she really knows that I'm the happiest doing that or both, right? Probably, probably both. So yeah, that's the story. My wife told me today. <laughs> that's, that's a great story. And I'm glad we, we kicked off with that. But that brings me to, to something else, which is you mentioned sanity and, and gray hair. And in an older podcast, I think it was your first appearance at the 20 Minute VC. You said you didn't believe in work-life balance. But then you, uh, on the more, more recent stuff, you, you talked about the importance of rest. And in fact, your pinned tweet is something about that. The best founders I know sleep 17 hours a night, uh, spend time with family and close friends, keep healthy. What changed your mind? I don't know if I changed my mind. I think that many people have uh, strong opinions uh, loosely held, right? So this is, uh, you know, all of us, are, I guess, uh, are trying to, to be in this state of mind. So I don't, I don't mind changing my mind. Uh, but having said that, I don't think I did. Maybe just evolving my thinking about it. And so first, I, I still don't believe in, in work-life balance because it's, it implies that, that you have to balance. Like you have uh, like a positive or a negative and you're trying to kind of get to a zero sum. And that's what I think about it. First, if you love what you do, then it doesn't feel like work. It feels like a hobby uh, most of the time. Not, not you know, every single minute you do it, obviously, but also hobbies don't feel like a hobby every single minute you do them. But the best work feels like something you want to do, not something you have to do for, you know, in order to pay rent or something. And so that's one, like it's not a, it's not a negative they're trying to balance with a positive. Plus family life has ups and downs as well, right? Like I have kids and everybody who has kids knows that it's either the best thing or the worst thing. It cannot be anything in between. So I don't believe in balance. I believe in, in some kind of um, a merge in a, in a healthy way. And it feels, a bit, it feels a bit pretentious to talk about like renaissance and like, you know, like, so I would not, but, but you get the direction, right? Like I think true fulfillment comes when, when you have this, this, this boat um, where the hull is, is, is not leaking and, it, and, and the sail has wind and you can choose where to go. It's a metaphor that actually um, I didn't invent. I, I, I uh, heard it uh, in Shane uh, Parrish's uh, podcast, you know, the Notch Project. So I forget who talked about it. Uh, you probably will find it and put it on a, on a link or something. But there is this discussion about Maslow's uh, pyramid of, of needs and, and, and the point that even Maslow didn't actually see it as a hierarchical pyramid, but more like a system, right? And, and if you have your, your hull, which is like your physiological needs, fulfilled and you're not hungry and you're not at risk physically and you have a shelter that's your hole and then, then you, your boat can can you can use the boat you can direct the boat to whatever direction you want so i like to think about it more like like this these days uh, if it makes sense right like a, like a, a complex system that has the family but also work but also me and also other people right and all of it is interacting and if everything intera is interacting well and if you don't have any leak in any place then you'll feel good and, and you can fulfill whatever whatever purpose you feel that you have in life if it makes sense you know i hope i'm not being too uh too uh fake uh philosophy too early in the discussion <laughs> no no it, it it makes a lot of sense and what i'm wondering and i always wondered is why people why people keep 
just uh, shouting to the winds about hustle and, and just work, 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 work. When it, I don't know, maybe it worked for some, but. I think it's, um, it's a proof that you care, right? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a signal. It's a signal to everybody around that first you are a founder, which is unfortunately a bit like a rock star these days. It has too much a romantic view of what it is, you know, as a job. It's, it's a really tough job. And you have to, you know, uh, like work in the field is a tough job. And if you like it, you enjoy it. And if you don't like it, you, it's like the worst thing ever. It's a bit like this, right? If you like what you do as, as a founder, then you really enjoy it. And if you don't, even 1%, then you will just suffer and you will not be successful. So I think it's a, it's a combination of the shout into the wind of, of I'm working 24-7, never having vacation. I think it's one is, is because it's, it's cool like, to be a founder these days. Oh, it used to be cool. Now it's maybe changing a bit. And two, you're signaling to everybody, your, your investors, your employees, your competitors, journalists, you're signaling to everybody that you're going to kill it. Like you're going to be successful by showing a proof of work like hours worked, which I would argue it's not the best proof of work in terms of, of like knowledge work, because if you, if you know anything about writing code, you know that you have breakthroughs in one hour that you would not achieve sometimes in a week, right? So the time is not the right metric. But I think that's it. It's signaling, signaling for, for various reasons. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not the best proof of work uh, or the best signaling mechanism. Uh, I'd argue that uh, like month or month, month or quarter or quarter growth is a much better signaling mechanism to, to investors. And, um, yeah, but this assumes that you have something to grow, like revenue or like something. You know what I mean? Like I know a lot of startups that are four years in that have no, nothing like in terms of uh, monetization. And, and so it's tough to show... I mean, it's actually easy because you choose a different metric every time you talk about it. Then it's always 10x growth. But if you don't have revenue, then it's tough to show any, any kind of growth. So um, I would argue have revenue and then you can show that instead of, as you say, instead of just talking about how many hours to do. Yeah, what, one thing that you mentioned is this founders as rock stars. Uh, and, I, and I see the negative side of things that you were mentioning. But I'd also argue that it's a good thing in a sense that whatever we can do to encourage more people to start more companies is a net positive. Yeah, it's an interesting thought because I, I don't disagree with it. Right? So, so progress, at least technologically speaking, comes from startups, obviously. Uh, every single leap that, that we can go back to from, from like Intel microprocessor days to today is thanks to a startup, right? Almost rarely, maybe with the exception of like the Bell Labs and like the, you know, uh, the Xerox kind of, but I was like, it seems like it was uh, almost like an anomaly in, in history. It certainly doesn't happen. I don't know if, if it's happening right now. It, it definitely comes from startups these days. So yes, I agree with this, or I didn't disagree with your, with your statement. Having said that, there is so much waste also that doesn't translate into, into progress and innovation and, and I mean, not even to a good business, right? So it's a bit like, actually, Rockstar is, has always, I think, been the great metaphor because the ratio of people who try to be Rockstars versus those who actually end up being Rockstars creates a lot of waste. You know, you go to Nashville or you go to um, New York or you go to Hollywood, you go to any restaurant and the staff is, is composed of people whose dreams were to be a Rockstar or a movie star and it never succeeded, but they have to do it because one in, I don't know what, what the ratio is, one in a thousand, one in 10,000 will become you know, Jason, what's, what's his name? Uh, 
I show my age, uh, Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber. <laughs> I was going to say Jason Bieber. His younger brother, Jason Bieber. So one in, in, in X would become J J Jason Bieber and, 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 and Miley Cyrus or whatever, you know, like, so you have rock stars, you know, creating and they improve the, the culture, you know, arguably. And same happens in startups, right? So maybe you need all of this waste in order to get to the, the, to the diamond. I don't know, but I just look around and I see so much waste and it's just painful. While I'm trying to hire great people for my team and it's, it's a struggle against other, you know, well-funded startups that can afford uh, to all, way overpay for, for certain roles. So, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's just a consequence of value creation. I, I, I don't know, really. So, but let's switch gears a bit. Um, even before Hotel Ninjas, your, your first company, you worked in operations at Charles de Gaulle. What surprised you from the behind the scenes at an airport? Like that's something that most people don't see or even think about. Airports are... It's, it's actually, it's, it's interesting because I, I don't know why, but, and I guess many people are like this, so I'm not, not claiming to be unique, but I always had this attraction to airports, you know, since, since I was a kid. I was, when I got my license in Israel, you get, you get your license when you're 17, and I would be always the, the, the one volunteering to go and pick people up from the airports. You know, anybody who landed in the airport, I would go and do it at any time. I just enjoyed going there. And, and, and I don't know, like, like people don't see your, your face, but you're nodding. So I, I'm guessing maybe you're like, they, like this as well. But uh, so again, I'm not unique, but something interesting in an airport. And when I got this job, uh, it, it, it was a job to pay for my study. So I, I, I started, my undergrad, uh, I studied it in, in Paris and I just needed a job to pay for my uh, living expenses, you know? So I took this job. It wasn't out of this passion about, about aviation that I took the job. I just needed... A way to pay for my studies and that was the, the the most available one working for for El Al the Israeli airline in, in Charles de Gaulle. Airports are amazing and, and you and taking this opportunity and, and discovering the other side was was great because what you see as a traveler is like 20% of the operation and there is an 80% that is completely hidden to you and it's so interesting you know it's it's complex and it has on, on a single flight for, for you to just enter the, the airport, the terminal, check in, send your luggage, go through security, go through passport control if you have to do it, you know, buy something on, on the air sides, like, you know, a sandwich or something, and sit in the lounge, take the flight, land, get your luggage, leave the airport on the other side. It has probably just what, what seems simple for you as a, as a passenger such a complex operation it has probably what i described probably like 30 companies involved different companies that are not related uh, in terms of like it's not uh, a group of companies these are companies working with each other and and can you think of another operation that has within like an hour and a half or less than an hour and a half while the plane is on the ground has 35 companies involved and everything needs to be perfect so you can take off on a specific minute to fit your slot because the slot is you have to take off at 9.05. Do not take off at 9.08. Somebody else takes off at 9.08. It's five-minute increment, but whatever. So it's such an efficient um, operation and such complex. It's so complex, which is, yeah, it's, I find it fascinating. And it's very offline, but also online. Technology is involved, but also human need, you know, humans pick up luggage and put it into another place. And dropping the luggage breaks the whole process because you will not get it, like physically dropping it and not picking it up. Like, like so... Breaking the process sometimes, like debugging is debugging humans sometimes, which is uh, yeah, it's super interesting. 
So if you enjoy airports, you probably have a favorite airport. I have to admit my home airport, BCM, Barcelona, I just like, it's such a convenient airport. It's very close to the city, like you're 20, 25 minutes away from the city. You rarely take more than 30 minutes to go from outside, like curbside, to airside. And if, if it's very busy day, you just, for five years, I shouldn't say it in air because everybody will know the hack, but for five years, you can buy a fast pass and just go around and, and not wait at all. Um, so yeah, extremely, it's new, it's modern. The only problem is the lounge is not great, but that's kind of a bit, uh, I guess, uh, asking a bit too much. But otherwise, yeah, definitely BCM. Yeah, I agree. And it's also the, the added thing of being the home airport. I usually like my, yeah. my home airports, and except when I lived in Paris, where Charles de Gaulle was the, yeah. sort of the home airport. Nobody, yeah. nobody, nobody in Paris that. likes their home airport in Paris. Like this is, uh, <laughs> Chagall is the opposite, actually, of what I said. It's not convenient to get to. You have to use this shitty... Sorry, I don't know if you, if you allow a shitty... Uh, going yes. To, are you going to ping me? No, no, but definitely like, not. So, no? <laughs> definitely, definitely no. I say shit and fuck all the okay. time. So, no worries. Oh wow, this is a this is a wild, uh, <laughs> wild podcast. I can see. So, so you take Eroel Bay, which is like this shitty train, no air conditioning. I think they're renovating it now. Maybe, hopefully, it's, it's far away from the city. The airport is horrible. Like no, like Shadowgold is the opposite almost of the worst airport than Shadowgold, but it's one of the worst airports. I think it was voted, or it's being every year it's voted as one of the worst airports in the world. So, by the way, Orly is not so bad. The other airport in Paris, unfortunately, it's not used that much uh, for long haul. It's used mostly for domestic and, and Europe. Uh, but when when you go from Barcelona to Paris, you you can land in in, in Orly, and that's a much better experience than than Shadowgold. Yeah, that, that was one of my go-to uh, routes for, for a while. The one I don't really like is Beauvais, the, the one outside the city. That really sucks. But, <laughs> yeah, no, but Beauvais is like Girona, right? It's like, it's not yeah. Paris. It's, they say, I actually, learned, it's funny, I landed once in, uh, they always have these airports that they call them the city, but they're not. And if you don't know the city, you're in deep shit. So I landed in, in uh, Stockholm for the first time uh, a couple of years ago, years ago and, and middle of the night. And you know, it is like, like you travel, you don't, I don't know if you do the same, but I, I don't pre check how, like I just land and I figure it out, you know, like it's a, in most places in the world, it's not like, at least in Western countries, it's not that difficult. So I land in Stockholm and I go to take a taxi and I sit in taxi and, and the guy didn't speak English. And luckily we were able to communicate a little bit and I asked him how much it will cost. And he said 140 euros or something, you know, like what, how long is the drive? But it was like an hour and a half, but like what? And and I and then of course like an idiot I, it's the first time I checked where where I was and there they have three airports in, in Stockholm and one of them is like yeah hundred something kilometers away from the city it's not it's like Bove right so it turns out I had to take a bus and like it was like like I arrived three a.m. to the hotel it was a really bad decision to to save money on that flight so check where you land is is a good uh, a good uh, recommendation it's a great recommendation that happened to me of all places in Beijing I landed in this former military airport an hour or something outside of the city at 4 a.m. and no one speaks English. So yeah. I had to convince a guy who looked young enough to speak English to take me on his taxi <laughs> to the center. So yeah, it was... Check where you Check where Let's Let's keep a few years and get into Travelberg a bit. You've been very deliberately on hyper growth mode since you started in, in 2015. 
Why do you think ambition and aggressive goals are important? I don't know if there is any other way, really, because you're going to miss anything you 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 come to 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 state as your goal, right? I mean, I don't think there is probably less than uh, I'm being cautious. Less than ten companies, then less than ten startups that did scale, where you go back to like you know what they promised to themselves or to the investors early days and you know, where it happened and it happened on time, right? It's, it's, you're going to miss it, right? You're going to be like, by nature of, of the beast, you're going to be optimistic. Otherwise you're not starting a company and your optimism will make you overestimate what you can achieve and how fast you can achieve it. Because of that, if you aim, if you don't aim super high, then you're going to miss, by definition, if you're going to miss, then you're going to miss, let's say, by 20, 30, 50%. And if you aim super high, then you're going to miss by 50%, but still land on, on good on a good result. So, because of of how unpredictable everything is and unpredictable to less achievement, everything takes longer. Everything is more expensive. Everything is more complicated than what we you imagined. You think hiring, for example, you can just decide to hire, and then you, you just next month you have somebody in, in, in the seat, and sometimes it takes a year, and and you miss that year of productivity from that person that you needed early days. That that it's a big it's a big deal. So I think the only way to achieve something of, of significance, of meaning, is to aim super high and then achieve as close as possible. Like that's what, why OKRs are, are great, because you set a goal that is super measurable, and then you try as hard as you can to achieve it without shitting yourself to rem remembering that 60 to 70% is good outcome for, for an aggressive um, result. So if you don't remember that, if you, for, if you cheat yourself into Forgetting that, that's great because you try to achieve the 100% and you will end up achieving 60 or 70% if you, if you said it correctly. So that, the, yeah, the, the ambition is what I think drives great results. So ambition as a way to bake optimism. Into not giving yourself a discount on, on saying, you know, if you, if, you, if you say a public company grows 40% year over year, and that's great, so I go 60%. Obviously nobody says that, but if you did say it, then you're just you're aiming too low and then you, you aim for 60%, you achieve 20% and you get into this death spiral of, of not growing. Whereas if you aim for 10x year on year, early years, and you get 5x, that's fucking amazing, right? So, and it's not impossible, right? Like, like it's, it's literally how every single great company you know has started. They aimed for 10x, they got 5x, and that was an amazing result, right? So at least early days, of course, as, as you get to scale, it's more and more, more and more predictable on one, one side and more and more difficult to come up with crazy stuff in terms of what you're trying to achieve on the other side. And I would say a second point around ambition is ambition is, and I would be careful using this word, but contagious. Right? And, and great, especially great early team members don't want to work with non-ambitious founders. They understand the upside. So I'm talking about super early, like what we call founding members. We have a few people in the team that have joined us so early that I look at them as, as founding members of, of the company and they joined for the adventure of, of hyper growth. They joined for the adventure of building something together. And if you're not talking about it, if you're not actually serious about it, then they will not join. And you need these people, you need the dreamers who join early. They're not maybe you know, where they were in, the, in their life or family, whatever, they're not ready to be founders yet, but they're ready to join as early as month four and bet on you and getting paid way less than what the market would pay them. But they only are willing to do it if there is an upside and you're selling the upside 
by meaning it and you mean it by having a huge uh, high ambition. So I think it's, it's super important also for that, for attracting the team initially. You can only be ambitious, I guess, if you have complex problems to solve. Does that mm. resonate? I think ambitious, you can be ambitious if you have, yeah, I mean, depending on how you define a problem, right? So, so you can be ambitious about building a big, a big business or overtaking incumbents in, in an industry that has been around forever and nobody likes the, the existing solutions, which is the case for us in business travel. So, yeah, the, the complexity, the, um, the fact that the huge opportunity exists and that nobody, I think that, yeah, like for us, for example, it was around, it's a huge market. So business travel is $1.5 trillion globally, at least, you know, BC, before Corona. So we'll see what AC looks like. I have my bet running on Twitter with a few people that 2021 will be better than 2019. I'm, I think the only one in the industry who thinks like that. So let's see if, if I'm crazy or, or contrarian in a good way probably crazy but you know we'll see so it's a huge industry and nobody has cracked it open right if you if you look at, at the biggest player in, in business travel uh, american express they are something like 2.5 percent market share depending on on how you measure it so that's a challenge that is i think super interesting and you can build a motivated team around how about we can be the first one who are uh, going to be 10% market share, right? Um, in this this huge, as I said, 1.5 trillion dollar industry. So I think that's also a way to to create this 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 high ambition is looking at an industry that nobody won, where nobody won before, and say we're going to win there. And our way is different. Our way is the technology and product versus uh, just throwing people at the problem, right? So you have a different way of 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 uh, structurally different way. Of solving it, and it's a huge problem, right? So the, the mix of the size of the problem and how we're solving it, for us at least, is it's what really uh, motivates us to to go after it. I want to talk a bit about that bet. Um, why are you long business travel other than, of course, the financial upside? I guess. But the curious thing is, I'm long remote work, but also long business travel and i have my reasons but i'd love to hear yours yeah so i think your your uh your two longs are, are i would agree with both so depending how we define remote but if, if we mean more flexibility and people so so full remote i think is a hike that will go away at one point and, and it has always been a niche right so so i'm not saying it will completely go away the, the niche might have grown now because of covid but i think people will find a hybrid way as, as the next 20, 10 years my bet is will be a hybrid way of you have an office and you have some physical interaction with your colleagues but it's more or it's less frequent than it used to be and you have more flexibility in choosing where you're working from that you know today so i think i agree with you on that one the reason i'm long on business travel is i would say two points one is human nature and the virus doesn't or didn't change human nature so it's not a, it's not a virus that changes your dna in a way that you don't need social interaction anymore. And if it were, then I, I would have to change my mind, but it's not. Because of that, we crave social interaction. And in a way, maybe, maybe even more so, now that we have been locked down for three, four months, and we haven't traveled for, uh, most of us haven't traveled for six months now, almost. So we're talking, we're talking on the beginning of August 
2020 and, and Spain where I'm based has been locked down since, or it's, the lockdown is over now, but this, it started in, on March 14th, right? So yeah, we're talking five months of, of some kind of restriction and travel hasn't resumed. I mean, you can travel now in Europe without restrictions, but most people are not traveling yet. Not at least as, uh, at least not as they used to be, to do before. So I think this period, if anything, maybe not only will not reduce our willingness to travel, it will emphasize the value that we get out of meeting people face to face, right? And and I see it way more clearly. Like it's like we try to do a partnership now with a company in the US, and it's taking like probably five times longer than it should because we have never met them face to face. I'm a hundred percent sure that if we, I could just hop on a plane, go to the US and meet them, we could get it done in one afternoon. And this back and forth, we'll just bring everybody to the same room, we'll have the discussion and then we'll break out to three groups, product will talk, commercial will talk, legal will talk, and then we'll bring everybody back. Like, you know how to do it. And, and it's so easy, it's so streamlined with face-to-face. And also having this relationship built in parallel to the business, like the human relationship, in addition to the business one, the transactional one, would have made this partnership potentially last way longer and be stronger, right? So I can see it more now, and I'm sure that many people who listen would agree that you, you understand what kind of travel was needed and you actually want to do more of that, not less of that now. You understand what kind of travel wasn't that needed, maybe you need to do less. So I think business travel will shift. For example, I'm not sure that people will, will uh, continue to go for education purposes, right? Like travel somewhere to learn, I think you are better off using you have so many tools now that you can do it online. I'm talking about specifically to learn, like you go somewhere to get classes, right? And, go, and there is no social part of it, just the classes. There are less and less reasons to do it uh, versus remote, right? So I don't see how this is going to keep growing. But if you were going to a conference, for example, you understand that even, and everybody knew it from before, but now it's obvious, like 100% clear to everybody that you don't go there for sitting down and listening to somebody talk on stage on a panel, which is BS in, in, in most cases. You go there for the networking that you're missing now because you've been sitting home for six months and you haven't seen your, the rest of your network in your industry. And you crave it to go and have this beer and have the jokes with them and keep building this, this network that is eventually how you make business, right? Like business in a globalized world is a network of people, right? So networking got this bad connotation of, of like wasting each other's time. No, like it, sometimes it is, right? Like I'm not saying it's not, but a lot of networking is how you get business done is you create these bridges between people, between companies, and then out of it comes great business and people are craving it now. So I'm very long on business. And I think most people will agree with me that business travel is coming back. The difference of like my optimism is how fast it is coming back. And I'm, I'm betting that it's coming back next year, 2021, and it's going to be lot bigger than the best year of, you know, historically of business travel, which was 2019. I think I agree. I'm, I don't have enough information to make the 2021 claim, but I do agree. And one, one extra thing is I usually think of travel, particularly business travel, as a signaling mechanism. So there's this concept of uh, positional scarcity, which means when there's a lot of something, the position is sort of emerges as a new kind of scarcity that's expensive and valuable. And now there's 
a lot of just Zoom meetings, essentially. So getting in a plane, it always meant you were serious about something, right? And now we're getting up like when no one is in a plane, the, the friction is, is even more uh, troubling than it's, it's, it's even more valuable, right? So yeah. as, as, low, as long as someone believes that and, and does it, just getting a plane to, to get something done, you're forced to, to do it, right? And then as long as someone, or until someone finds a more expensive or uh, mechanism to show you're serious, then I'm long business travel. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, so two points. One is, is, I spoke with a friend who works for a big American company, one of the biggest names you would know, a public company, and they had a travel ban until last week. So the travel ban was, you, you cannot travel, that's a default, and you have to have like super high in the hierarchy approval to, to do any kind of business travel. He's based in Spain. The company is an American global company, but he's based in Spain. And last week, they lifted the travel ban internally. And now everybody not only can travel, but people are encouraged to travel. And I asked him what, what's changed. And what's the difference? Like, is it a, like either new information about the virus or like, no, we have a long sales cycle. And if we don't travel now, the customers will not know how serious you are, we are and will not close for Q4. And we need the Q4 numbers. So we have to travel now to get the Q4 numbers. And it, and it was interesting because he said the word serious, exactly like what you talk about, the scarcity, right? And that was the point. So like the customer can buy, they're selling, you know, it's, it's a B2B sale and the customer can buy whatever we're selling uh, from these other providers who are in China and never visit customers. They're very cheap, but they never visit customers. This is the other one that is based in Europe, but doesn't travel yet. And we are based in Europe and I travel already. So I'm the one who travels and I, I will go. And, and in a way, him coming from Spain, because Spain has currently this reputation of being like ground zero for, for COVID, you know, rightfully or, or not. And him coming from Spain actually, and he has, to, you know, he takes a test before and he, like there's a whole ceremony. Like he takes the test for them and he sends them the results. Like not, not the, like, but just says, I got a test and, and I'm, I'm, I'm clear. And then he goes and meets. So there's even more hurdles now to pass through, you know, and he said they're more likely to close than, than not because of how much effort it took to go and meet, meet them in the middle of this pandemic, right? So in a way, the pandemic creates even more scarcity and, and the signaling is even higher, which I predict will, will create FOMO. So, so people will look around and like, oh, crap, all my competitors are traveling. I, get, I, I better get, get on the road as well. So the fear of missing out will be big. I think Q4, especially the beginning of Q4 for business travel, we will see an interesting rebound. I'm not sure, probably not back to 2019 numbers because there's so many restrictions still. If it, were, if it weren't for the, for the restriction, I think we would actually see Q4 going back to 2019 numbers. Given that we, we still have restrictions, that's not going to happen, but we're definitely going to see, uh, my guess is September and October will, will be the best months of the year for business travel. And, and it's, a, it's a bold claim because we had an amazing Q1. So. It's, it's even my team might not agree with me on my uh, optimism here. <laughs> Going back to the proof of work thing we were discussing earlier, this is uh, proof of seriousness. <laughs> yeah. um, going back to travel perk and hype. Think about it. So, sorry to interrupt, but, but think about it even like not, not for business travel. Think about it could actually become proof of seriousness, seriousness for like dating, for example. You know, like you, you get the COVID test and then like this is like the step 
that, that you, you have to show, you know, that, you know, like it could actually become like a, a proof of many things, you know, like a close circle of friends and, you know, that everybody is tested. So you have like a, like a bubble of confidence that even reinforces your friendship versus the people from the outside who are, you know, like this human psychology could, could play interesting games on, on, our, on us, on like our mind can play interesting games on, on us because of this new, new thing, you know, like there is a new class of people who gets, get tested every day. I know if you know, like, like extremely wealthy people get tested every day now and they live in a different world, right? Like they have no fear, like less fear of, of that because everybody around them has to get tested or is completely kind of uh, shielded physically, you know, with a mask and everything from them. So live in a bubble of health, right? So this, this crisis, this, this pandemic creates a lot of interesting phenomena, I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Going back to, to Travel Perk, you've been roughly doubling headcount every year. And if you double every year, again, roughly, by definition, most of your coworkers are new, right? 50% of your coworkers are new. How do you scale without destroying the initial culture that the founding team members set in place? It's uh, probably what takes, these days, what takes 80% of my time, personally. Some periods it takes 100% of my time, some a bit less, but on average, I would say 80% of my time is dedicated to that question. And I don't have the best solution, right? So like if, if yeah, unfortunately, I don't have uh, all the answers, but yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it a lot. I think the beginning is values. And what I mean by that is, I, I, so I would follow the Jim Collins definition of, of culture. And, of core values, right? And, and the best test of core values, according to, to, to Collins, is if you're willing to lose something to, in order to stick to your values, then that's a good test for are they core values or are they something you say because it makes you sound good, a good person, you know? So, so for us, everything starts with the values. And, and, we, and, and when I say values, I mean personal values. We sat down at the beginning of, of Trapperk and we were probably five of us in the team that day. And, and I remember it was like lunch with uh, Javier, my co-founder and I, we went on lunch and we drew down on a, on a piece of paper what would be the company values, which basically were our personal values. And then we added to our personal values three that we uh, inspired us from the Booking.com formula. Booking has something called the formula. They're a very Dutch company and being Dutch is like very focused on getting work done, right? And, and they don't believe in values or, or case calling the, the, the CEO of uh, the historic CEO and the legendary CEO of, of the company famously didn't believe in values. He believed in a, believed in a, in a, in a formula that if you uh, build on a formula, you'll be successful. And, and it was very successful. So we took three values from booking.com and then we added, I think four of ours and we had seven to begin with. And, you know, because they were not our values, we had to drop them at one point, the booking.com values and only stick to ours, which is a good, again, uh, way to look at, at uh, to show that values are really what you bring personally, not what you get, I say inspired, what I mean is copied, right? So you don't copy values from other companies. You really look inside and, and analyze what you believe personally and what your co-founders and what your initial team believes. And then you, over, like, you look at the, at the, at the overlap of, of, of the values of the different people around the table and then you distill it to what most people believe in. And that's what we did, right? So for us, for example, the seven, seven star, what we call the seven star experience um, was the value number one. And it, it's been there since day one. We, 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 what, when we say a seven star, we mean five stars, like, you know, the hotel five stars. So that you know, I actually sold it for Brian Chesky. When, when I met him, the, the CEO of Airbnb, and when I met him, I told him that 
uh, and he actually didn't remember that he said it. He said it in the podcast. He said, if you don't remember, that's mine. So that's original mine now. <laughs> I will not say I stole it. Uh, if you don't remember that he said it. So, so seven star is like everybody's trying five star. And that's a nice service, a great service. And we try seven, which means we'll spend three hours with a customer who's stuck somewhere because of a luggage handler strike. And we'll book a train for them when everybody else is stuck in Berlin, true case. And we'll find a solution. Like, are they saying Spanish COC? Like, I don't care, but we will find a solution for your problem. And that's one of our USPs, actually. It became one of our USPs. It's this amazing service that, that we provide. So it's value number one. And then we have four others. We're starting with the values. And then going back to your question, how do you scale with, without losing the culture? I'm starting with the values. And then we're hiring uh, based on the values. So people joining us on average will have eight interviews with eight different people. And out of this, so you're a developer, right? And, and, eight, and you get eight interviews, something like four or five will be technical and something like four or three will be cultural. And when we say cultural, we mean really structured interview around the values and trying to understand if we share some values, right? So culture is not, are you a nice person? Do, we, do I wanna have beer with you? It's do you uh, share the same values as a person that I do and the rest of the company does? Right? And, and if not, it's not a judgment about who you are as a person. It's just you're not a fit. Right? But it's not, I'm not saying you're a bad person for not believing in service. There are great, great uh, developers who don't believe in providing great service. Like actually, most of, most of great developers, I would argue, don't really believe in providing a great service internally. They just want to um, enjoy the technical challenge. And, and that's not a fit for us. Right? Our developers enjoy providing service internally because they have customers. They have either the actual end user who is a customer and they want to build an amazing product for them that they enjoy using. Or the internal customer could be somebody in the team and, or a colleague, you know, like another developer who needs help, for example, and you drop what you're doing right now, interrupt yourself and go and help them, which is not very productive for you. But that's how we do it because we believe in seven star and we believe in, in being a team, which is another value. So, so that's cultural fit. Cultural fit is do you personally share our five values or at least four of them or three of them? And in, with the others, you're like, don't, it's not like you don't share, but you don't have a lot of examples of how you share them, but you don't not share them. Like you, know, you don't go to, in the opposite direction of these other values. Then you are fit and then you might, you might be successful at the company. So that's how we do it. We're very serious about the culture in how we hire. And that's the only way I think you can be serious about the culture because you know, one of our values is be a good person. We are good people, which translates into like, we don't like assholes. We don't like competitive assholes in the company. We like competitive, collaborative people, which I think you can. So we like the Barca way of winning versus the Real Madrid way of winning. That's kind of how we see it. And Cristiano Ronaldo is a great football player, but he will not uh, fit our team as a, if we're, if we're a football team, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hire Ronaldo. I would definitely hire Messi. Uh, like, I guess every, every coach in the world would. Yeah, yeah. Would. So that, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything special here. So that's how we see it. Uh, be very deliberate in hiring for cultural fit and values. Be very deliberate in also sometimes letting go based on that, even if the person is, is a great individual contributor. And so far, it, is, it has been working for us, yeah. And how do you maintain that across multiple offices as well? Like, how do you make sure that each sub-office is... Because you have one in Berlin, another one in London, right? And Chicago. How, how do you make sure that like it's so like subculture starts brewing within those offices. I don't know if it's possible to not have it, right? So I think eventually you'll, you'll have slightly different cultures in every office 
And I'm not sure it's a bad thing. It's, and, and what I mean is, is as long as it shares the same uh, root culture, the same core values, which we make sure by hiring the same way in every place, by involving people from, uh, we don't have HR in any, any place outside of Barcelona. So uh, by nature of, of how we structure it, the same people will interview at certain kind of you know, junctions of, of the process, which, which acts as like a, like a, a checkpoint you know, in, in, in the process. And also we have people from Barcelona in every of, uh, of the other offices. So we have this kind of bridge into the, the newest offices, let's say, because Barcelona is, is, the, is the oldest office that we have. But having said that, as I, as I started by saying, I don't think it's necessarily bad that they will have a different flavor of our culture as long as it, it comes from the same ingredients. And also it's still ice cream, but instead of being strawberry, it's, it's vanilla, but it's still ice cream. It's not, it's not a pizza. Going back to collaboration or competitive collaboration, you guys are not remote. So you work from, from the office and you're very vocal about that. But then you were forced to go, to go remote, right? Due to COVID, at least for, for some time. I'm wondering what are some of the things you've done to, to simulate this serendipity that you got from the offices, but remotely? Yeah, so first, we actually are changing. As I said at the beginning, uh, it's good to, to think and change. So we are, like many companies, we are changing how we work. It's still uncertain if, even if we wanted to all go back to the same building in Barcelona, if we could do it in September, it's still unclear. And many people are still scared of the virus, uh, which we shouldn't forget. You know, not everybody is like, yeah, whatever, the virus is, I'm young, so I don't care. Like many people actually are scared of the virus. And it's something you should take into account. If you care about your team, you should take into account that. I just mentioned that we have a seven-star experience to the team, the customers to the team. And it's not a seven-star experience to force people to go back to an office if they're scared for their life. Just not, you know, it's not a bad experience. Uh, not a good experience, sorry. So we are changing. And the way we are going to work in the future will be a hybrid boat, like many other companies where we will keep offices, it will be a center for our culture, it will be a focal point for our culture, for this interaction, this serendipity that we're looking for. But people will, will be able to have flexibility and choosing uh, where they're working from uh, most of the week. We'll still have some mandated working with your team days, but if you know, you're a developer and you just need to write code, you'll be able to do it from anywhere most of the week. So, so we are evolving. How we did it during COVID, um, I guess my honest answer would be, number one, we were in such a crisis as a business that the number one priority, number two priority, number three priority were related to surviving. When you go to war, like, like actual war, you don't really think about, is my mattress very comfortable, right? Like it's not how you, and, and sleeping on a good mattress is, is very important, you know, super important actually. But you'll sleep on the ground in a hole covered with like some bush because it's war and you have to, you know, you know what I mean? So it's a different mentality and state of mind. So that's how we approached it. We did some stuff to keep the team together. Like you know, we, we got really close via Zoom, of course. We saw each other on like stuff like we would deliver office supply to everybody. So we found some ways to just keep some, because some people, you know, if you think about like a single person who relocated to Barcelona to work for us, who's in an apartment now in Gracia, they don't know anybody uh, outside of the company, like they maybe just relocated. We have a few, ca a few cases of people 
relocating for like from Brazil to Barcelona to work with Trapper, and then a week later going to lockdown. So they don't know anybody, they're living by themselves, like and they're locked down for like three months, not being able to leave the apartment. That's a tough situation. And even like meeting them to deliver like um, a keyboard, because we did like IT truck, we rented a, a truck and then we drove around the city delivering chairs. So my chair, you know, like was delivered by my team, keyboards, like people didn't have stuff that they needed to work from home because as you said, we never did work from home. So even like this quick interaction and seeing another human was, was important. But yeah, I mean, I have to say it, culture wasn't the number one goal. It was a side effect because for example, you know, like, you know, we had to go into uh, follow, right? We had to do unpaid, uh, not unpaid, um, how do you call it? Um, reduced working hours for, for many people, you know, people in customer support, for example, had less volume. So we had to reduce the hours, but we topped up their salary to 80%. The government here in Spain wasn't paying enough, but we, you know, out of pocket, out of, out of basically the cash we had from raising money, we topped people up to 80% so that they don't get more than 20% hit uh, in, on the base salary, not, not including commission. So by doing this, you reinforce your culture. If your culture is real and if you talk about seven-star experience, you know what I mean? So just by acting in a certain way in a tough time, and, and actually even more because it was a tough time, and, and people knew that. They looked around, and, and many of their friends got laid off. Uh, we are the only company in, in the travel industry, especially in business travel, that didn't lay off. And everybody else did layoffs, and we didn't. So people looking around it and seeing how we're handling this, this crisis, and it reinforces the culture because it matches our values. Right? So I think the best way actually to, to reinforce the culture is by action. And this crisis created opportunities for us that I would happily choose not to have, by the way, but it is what it is, you know? So you're, dealing the, you're playing with the cards you were dealt. And we got the cards that allowed us to show uh, with action our culture, right? So in a way it was a good opportunity to build even double down on our culture and again, it's not like I, I enjoyed having this opportunity, but it is what it is. Doubling down on your team, on your culture, was one of the very specific decisions you made when, when COVID broke. You also said you kept investing in your platform, but you also made your first acquisition. You up yeah. for sharing a bit about that? Yeah, sure. A little bit. A little bit. We, we like to keep some, uh, some cards uh, you know, hidden, but cool. let's see what you ask. <laughs> <laughs> so you acquired Albatros, which is an, an API that provides data on COVID-related travel restrictions. Yeah. I, I wrote about it. Uh, we exchanged a few emails, which is how we ended up doing the, the podcast. So yeah. just give me the like the two, three sentence version of why you, you did that acquisition. So the way we look at it is is when when COVID started, we we using OKRs. Um, as a way to objectively key results, you know, as a way to set goals for the company for every quarter. And then we had yearly goals that we kicked off in January. Then the first week of March, we basically scratched everything, just threw to the bin the OKRs and the yearly goals and went into war mode, created a war cabinet. We actually had a team called the war cabinet that was, was running the war. And we had three objectives, three uh, strategic ob objectives as a company. One is, is to survive, or was to survive, and still is because it's not over yet. And meaning, basically, you have to have cash, so reduce the spending, preserve cash, a little bit of money that we didn't talk about, but there's a bit of money at um, the beginning of, of, of the crisis. So, so basically, survive. Number two, 
was emerge strong. So make sure that you don't lose. Yeah, losing fat is always good, but losing muscle or bone is not great. So for example, if you lay off the entire sales team, we know how long it takes to build the sales team from scratch. But first, it doesn't fit our values to lay off people that we don't want to lay off, right? So we have an amazing team. Lay them off, it's not a great experience. I'm not saying companies should never lay off. I'm not saying that. But if you can avoid it, I would happily avoid it. And then second, it takes such a long time to train them and the, and the sales cycle is relatively long. So we would miss the next year, right? So this is about emerging strong is if, you, if I lay off the salespeople, I will miss 12, 12 months of productivity once the market is ready. And maybe even more so because once the market is ready to go back, many of our competitors have unfortunately gone away now, right? Either out of business or completely lost the ability to grow. We kept everything. We kept this ability to grow and we can go and explode like this on, on growth once people are ready to go back to travel. So that was priority number two. Priority number three was to turn lemons into lemonade. And that's where Albatross comes in. And the idea there was this crisis has created opportunities that didn't exist before for our business. Let's not ignore them. Right? It was third priority, so it's not, it's not uh, number one, number two. It's always first survive, second emerge strong, but it's up there with, with the, other, the other two. And then we started looking around at what companies need now and what com customers need. And the obvious one is uh, when you think about a COVID situation or, or a post-COVID world, a post-lockdown world, I should say like this, but before COVID is gone, but because it will take a few years, like, like even as, as a very optimistic person, I think it will take a few years until we stop talking about COVID. Like it's not a thing. It's not going to be immediate. And maybe, maybe never, maybe it will, like AIDS has been around for 40 years and we still talk about it. The scare of AIDS has gone from being like a pandemic kind of scare in the 80s to people kind of almost seeing as a chronic disease because of treatment, because of you know, how people think about it. Uh, it's still a horrible disease, but people are less, most people don't live in panic of AIDS like they used to in, in, the, in the 80s, for example. And so maybe COVID will never disappear, but we'll just get used to having it around, like it's just a thing. Until it happens, you have a moment of uncertainty. And I don't know how long this uncertainty will last. I don't know if it's two months and maybe, you know, a miracle will happen and we'll have a vaccine ready and, and produced at enough quantity uh, by November, by wishful thinking, I think, but maybe. Until it comes, we will have this, this uncertainty. And uncertainty brings a lot of questions, especially for business travel, right? So can I travel? I need to think about traveling to, to Berlin. Can I travel? I don't know, like things change so fast and governments are so messy with this thing. Does Spain allow me to live? Does Germany al allow me to land? If I'm coming from Catalonia versus from Madrid, is, it, like, is Catalonia different than Madrid for German authorities when you land? Do I have to have a test? Do I have to wear a mask? When I, like, in Berlin, nobody wears a mask. I was, I was shocked. I went there, my first business trip, I did a Twitter thread about it, was, and actually somebody said that I was full of shit because I didn't show a picture inside the plane that they claimed that I was lying. I didn't actually travel, which is funny because I sometimes, I like some, like, you know, like everybody else, I like some conspiracy theories, but, but it's funny when you are in the middle of the conspiracy of like, you didn't travel, you're lying. You're like, seriously, like, like uh, did I like Photoshop myself in Berlin? But anyway, so I was shocked. I landed from Spain where everybody wears a mask. Now everybody wears a mask in, in, in Spain. Nobody goes out of the home in the street without the mask. And you land in Berlin and nobody wears a mask. Like literally, like you feel weird wearing a mask in the street in Berlin. So all of this information now is super um, unclear and it brings a lot of anxiety for the business traveler and for the travel manager. This not knowing what's going on is so um, uh, stressful, 
right? And it just makes you less likely to go on that sales trip that you need to go in order to sell this Q4, close the Q4 quarter that we talked about before. So, so Albatross uh, is, is a startup that was funded by an amazing guy called Rafael uh, De Vero. He used to work at LetGo before with my chief product officer, so that's how they know each other, Ross, my chief product officer, and him worked together. And he saw the opportunity and he just quit his job and, and built an API specifically for that. He built an API that provides the answers for the question I just uh, described that brings this knowledge for the travelers. And the API approach is super smart because this information only existed so far in a very old school tool uh, done by YATA, by the International uh, Association of Travel uh, Airlines and, and Travel Agencies. And it's like this old school, not user-friendly, expensive now because the free version was shut down uh, tool. So it's not be really being used by anybody. And the right approach is an API that you can plug into the search, right? So for us at Travelberg, you're searching for a flight between Barcelona and Berlin, and I will show you answers for all of these questions that I, uh, I just described. So we looked at it as a customer and being aggressive, we said, why would we let anybody else enjoy the, not the, the API access, but the value that it will create if we can you know, capture all of, all of, of this value as a business. So we had a nice discussion with Raphael and we uh, decided to uh, team up. And uh, this way I think we can, it's such a valuable thing, we will actually keep offering it. So we're not, we're gonna, so it's not, and that's, um, where I told you, like when we exchanged some emails and I, saw, I told you that analysis was 100% right, except this 1% of, you said that I'm, I'm a better man by, by allowing other people to use it. It's not out of my good heart. It's uh, just, I think will be a great business. Cool. So you're essentially, you, you think it's, it's gonna be a better business than the moat that it could create around Travelberg? Yes, uh, long-term, yes. Short-term, no. Short-term, we are the only ones who have it. So we could, but, but I think you have to think, like you have to use this moment. And we as, as startup founders tend to think really short-term, which is how we start. But if you think long-term, then yeah, I think it will be better for us uh, to, to keep providing this, this uh, service plus. And it sounds, it may sound a bit cheesy, but I think it's really asshole. And we, as I told you, we have one of our five core values is be a good person. I think it's a really asshole move not to provide this everywhere and i'm not doing it again like out of like it's not it's not a philanthropy like i would charge for it right but it's a really asshole move to not let people like people need to travel right now and and if unfortunately for them they're using one of the old school travel agencies like american express or cwt or you know courting less or one of these uh, companies it's just unfair to not allow them to you know like it, and it impacts directly their, their life because if you cannot travel, you know, you're not your salesperson, you cannot get the work quota, you don't make enough money this year, your family will suffer. So, yeah, I may sound like, like a naive uh, uh, person full of ideals, and, and believe me, I'm not. Again, I think it would be great business, but also it's, it feels good to, to do something like this and be able to provide, it, provide this information for everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And as you said, strong opinions, loosely held, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> You've been keeping a journal throughout this entire process. Uh, when did you start and how is that going? Yeah, so I have to say that I'm not a journal person. I, I wish I were. It, it looks like a, a great uh, habit to have. I'm not disciplined enough for, 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 for keeping one. 
but I did start, as you said, at the beginning of, of Corona. I felt like I needed a journal because things were so crazy at the beginning and, and changing so fast. And it felt like a historic moment for the company that I just wanted to remember what happened. And I'm, I don't have a good memory. So um, you would ask me, what was your thinking, you know, four months ago? Like, I would not remember. I would kind of convince myself that I remember a different story, right? So I actually wanted to capture the real thinking and what really happened on the moment. So it was basically just a bullet point list of like, I was like just going to this Evernote note. And whenever something felt interesting or important, I, I wrote it down. And I also wrote down how I thought about it or how I felt, or why I made a certain decision. And I would use, uh, the thinking is I would use it. I don't know if it will happen, but I will use it as going back, looking at the decisions that you know, I took or, or the team took in a moment of, of high uncertainty and almost uh, panic. Not, not, luckily, we didn't go to panic, but it was very close and it was easy to go to panic mode. So how did the decisions we took in that moment, fair and, and what was the outcome, right? So that's kind of the purpose of this, of this journal. You can look at the frequency. You can correlate the frequency to how shitty the situation was. So I was, I was writing a lot of entries in the shittiest moments. For us, it was April. So April was like the bottom month in revenue, the highest un, uh, uncertainty, the lockdown was full on. You know, it was, it was a tough moment. And I was writing like, you know, 10 entries a day. And now I think I haven't written anything in like a month or something. So <laughs> it's a good sign. It's a good sign. I, like the moment I will stop completely will be the best uh, moment I think for us. Definitely a good sign. And you're not an avid uh, journaler, or if that's even a word, but you're an avid reader. You've mentioned a few books that impacted uh, your life and your work, like Deep Work. You also mentioned Jim Collins earlier, and those are great and fascinating reads, but they're fairly mainstream. You also mentioned in, in some interviews somewhere a, a Swedish novel called 100 Year Old Man Who Climbed Out of the Window. So I'm wondering, yeah. how do you pick what you read? Because that's, that's an obscure book. Yeah. So first, I, I mean, I'm not as an avid reader that I would like to be. So there is a big gap between my, how, many, how many books I want to read and how many I end up reading. And I stopped feeling guilty about it, but it's still something I wish I could be better at. And especially because it's such a different thing to do versus this high noise stuff that we call the internet. So I grew up, you know, I'm, I'm 38 years old. I grew up with, you know, starting 92, I was online and I was coding before that. So I grew up with the internet. And I think many of us from our generation are completely comfortable living online as, as like compared to like my parent generation it's very different and, and I guess it will be different to my kids who will maybe live on a mobile phone uh, versus living on, on online which is different I think so anyway to the books question so that, that was my disclaimer because I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm an imposter by claiming to be a, an avid reader when I don't feel like I actually am no one reads as much as they want to or they claim to but yeah, yeah, maybe I'm too honest then, but, uh, but, but yeah, so, so I, I do read the mainstream or I did read the mainstream. Uh, a lot of these books I read around the time I went to business school. So, you know, Jim Collins, I read right after business school and, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell, I think around this time. So all the kind of the, the mainstream stuff I did, some of it is good. Like I, 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 I'm not a hipster enough to hate mainstream just because it's mainstream. I, I do think Jim Collins is one of the best business writers 
a lot of business books are, are shit, by the way, but his are, are, I find, those are read at least, are really good. Lean Startup is a, a must read in our company. You know, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is a, a mainstream book, is also a great book. So there are a lot of great books that are mainstream and you just find them because everybody will talk about them. And that's one way of finding um, good reads. And again, like you have to filter out. So depending who, defend, who who's the person who refers the book to you, I think you could, you could judge if it's a shitty mainstream or a good mainstream um, book. And if you trust their opinion, if you think they're smart people, then well-read, then the recommendation might be good. So yeah, one way is, is, is mainstream, and I don't think necessarily it's bad. Another way, especially for, for fiction, this, this Swedish book you, you mentioned is fiction. I just picked it up from, I stretched my hand to the other side of the bed, and I just picked up whatever my wife was reading. I have no idea how she found this book, uh, but she's way smarter than me. And she's way more intellectual, so she has better taste. And I just, I finished reading whatever I was reading before, and I just picked up whatever she had finished reading before. So completely random. I don't know if your, your listeners can, can use that method. Pick uh, a book from my wife's uh, nightstand. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if that's a good way. And then the third way is picking topics that I really am I'm, I'm curious about. And asking people who know about this topic, what would they recommend as a first read? So I was curious about uh, Christianity recently because, I, I mean, I grew up in Israel and, and you know, I'm Jewish by, by let's say, uh, tradition. I'm not religious, but kind of by tradition. And in Israel, in, in all schools, you learn about Judaism as a mandatory part of your education. But you don't learn about other religions, or very lightly, at least in my age. Uh, very lightly, you learn about other religions. And I was curious about some elements of the philosophy of the, you know, the theology of, of Christianity and because I don't know much about it. And I have a friend who is uh, Catholic and he's very religious. And, and I asked him because he would, you know, he's very well read. He's a very nice person and kind of open-minded, uh, but also very religious. So I figured he's the, he would be the best person to ask. And I asked, what do you recommend for somebody who doesn't know anything about uh, Christianity? I recommend a book called Mere Christianity. He said, that's the best introduction book to understand the theology and the philosophy behind Christian thought. So. I think that's a, a great way to, to approach it is if you're curious about a topic, find an expert in your network and, and ask them, and not even in your network, many experts will happily recommend something if you just approach them via email and say, somebody you don't know. So I, I approached Dan Ariely, asked for, for an advice and, and he replied, he gave me an advice. Like he doesn't know me, it was just nice. I asked one easy question and it was an easy answer for him. By the way, when you uh, send something to Dan Ariely, there is an auto reply that he is physically, you know, he has a, a severe burn injury, I think from his childhood, if I'm not mistaken. And he physically has pain when he, when he writes email. So when you send him an email, you get an auto-reply explaining that and saying he apologizes for not replying because it's painful for him physically to reply to every single email he gets. And he must be getting thousands of emails every day. And he replied to mine, which is, uh, it shows you the quality of my question, I guess. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So, yeah, you can ask experts that you don't know. Just ask them what they recommend, and, and you might get great, great reads like this. So the, the second trick, extending your arm and reaching to your wife's nightstand, this brings me back to the first question, which is, huh, how do you start a company your wife tells you to? And the, sort of the, the underlying thing is maybe pick a great partner. That's probably a good uh, advice uh, for life, yeah. And, and I would say even, and maybe it's not very popular these days, but I would say pick a partner, you know? And I, like every, every situation, every context and every person's life is different. And I, would, I do not claim to know you and, and 
tell you the listener, I don't know you the listener and I don't know how your life is, but I think, actually I, I, I thought about it um, the other day and, and it looks like, if you think about it, we live in a, at least here in, in Europe, right? I look around and, and maybe I have a bias because of, of the sample of, of friends and, and people I know, but it, but it looks like we're living in one generation offset, you know, like people start their life in a way, 10 years later than the previous generation. And I think we're missing out on a lot of good things. So we, we give too much weight to our freedom when we're 20, in our 20s, right? And, and to do whatever I want and, and starting a family or, or, or partnering up with somebody feels like the opposite of that. And actually, I would argue, I would argue that it actually creates a lot of a lot more value, a lot more freedom that you want long term. So, so of course, it creates less freedom short term because you cannot, you know, date anybody you want, and you cannot go party unless you meet a partner who likes to party like you. But, but plus, I mean, at least for, for me personally, the, the 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 reason of partying disappeared because I don't actually, I, I never actually enjoyed it. It was just a purpose, you know. And the reason disappeared once I met my wife. I would, I would say that it's a good way to find books but also a good way to live your life and and yeah i'm not and, and i'm not preaching like it's not like it's not coming from there i just do whatever you want like i don't i don't care honestly how you live your life but i think that people missing are missing out on this value because they have a different or wrong concept or understanding of what it means to to have a family and i think for example as founders they say, I don't have time for that. I founded Hotel Ninjas when my first son was born and, and I founded Fireberg when my second was born. Right? So you can definitely found companies and, and be successful while creating a family. And I would argue that it actually helps you focus and distill and not be wasteful with your time. So it has a lot of good stuff that come out of it. And plus I cannot fail, like my kids need to eat. So there's like my investors know, like I, I don't come for money. So I have no plan B. Like, you know, luckily I, I made some money selling my first company, but think about like, the first one. There is no, like failing is not an option. I have no, like my kids, think, go back to like, you know, the early days of, of Hotel Ninjas and my kid was six months old when I, I, I mentioned, sorry, after we sold it in the early days of Trauberg, I had to succeed. Like we ha- there was no other option. My wife is a teacher. So she makes, she brings a lot of good stuff to the world by teaching kids. She's a teacher in high school. But society doesn't compensate teachers. Like this is one of the failures of, of, our, of, our, of our civilization is we don't compensate civil servants, good civil servants enough because we compensate all civil servants the same. And some of them are shit. Most of them are, you know, depending on the, on the department. Some of them are shit and some of them are amazing. And there is no incentive to be amazing because everybody gets paid the same according to how many years you've been there. That's the only way of getting more money. So it, the whole system is broken there. So unfortunately, she doesn't bring the, the same amount of money that, you know, that correlates with, with the value that she creates in the world. So at least money-wise, it's on me, right? And if, if you have young kids, you have a lot of incentive to be successful. So there is like this meme of never, uh, for, for VCs, especially in Silicon Valley, like you shouldn't look at, at founders with kids. And they, no, they will never say it on Twitter, but they will always say it between themselves. And I think that's completely missing the point. You, you have to have a good partner who's supportive of that lifestyle because it's not like this nine to five uh, lifestyle doesn't exist. When I say have a good life with your family, it doesn't mean you don't work many hours at work, especially at the beginning. 
so yeah, I, I think it has a lot of value creating a family. And for me, it's what drives me. Like this is the reason I, I do everything we do. So yeah. Let's wrap it up with that, Avi. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for asking uh, great questions. Hey, this is Gonsagan. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.